Welcome to Drinks with Tony. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, was released last week. Bruce Ferber and I both saw the film. We do discuss it in this podcast, but don't worry, there's no spoilers. One of us hated it and one of us loved it. So when you get there, just know that we're not going to spoil any of the plot, etc. for you. Hey, uh, welcome to Drinks with Tony. Enjoy the show. I'm Bruce Ferber and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Bruce Ferber. He edited the new book from Rare Bird, Rare Bird Books. Okay, I'll take that over. <laughs> Who wrote this? <laughs> okay. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Bruce Ferber. He edited the book, The Way We Work, On the Job in Hollywood on Rare Bird Lit. He's also the author of Elevating Overmen, and Cascade Falls. His television resume is huge, and he was a showrunner on Home Improvement, above many, along with many other things. Bruce, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Tony. Pleasure to be here with you. And uh, yeah, this new book just came out, and I've been doing a bunch of events, and um, we did something yesterday that was absolutely crazy because... Yes, okay. yes, which is, I, I can't plug them highly enough. They're, they're like the hottest new alt-comedy venue in town. And I was invited there to be part of somebody else's program, and they heard about my book, and they said, why don't you do a book event here? And the next thing I knew, I'm doing like a live theater event. And, you know, I'm a writer, and I work with actors, but I don't consider myself an actor. And the next thing I know, I'm producing this this book event which is more than just a book event we had we had music we had readings and then I interviewed four people and they had a big video screen in the back and it was it was just so cool please, please tell me they taped it and it's gonna come out on podcast or something I don't know <laughs> I, I can't tell you that <laughs> I'd love to tell you that but you know it was sort of an experiment for all of us like they didn't know me they never saw me before and I didn't even know how it, it would hang together you know because it was a multi-format thing you know with the readings and then I interview people and what happened was I was trying to time it all out you know like at regular readings people generally read like seven minutes and and then they know the people who know how to read know to get the hell off stage the seven minutes is the key to every good reading okay so I went by that and so I had seven I had seven performers so I had two readings and one music PowerPoint presentation and four interviews. So, um, so seven people, and I tried to stick to the seven-minute rule. And so what I said at the beginning of this event to the audience was that, you know, it's a lot of people, it may be kind of like speed dating to you. And, and I said, but, you know, when I thought about it, this is not that dissimilar to speed dating because everybody you, you're going to see on this stage is available. <laughs> okay, how, I explained that. Like, not sexually available. <laughs> no, available because everybody wants the next project. This is all about Hollywood. So everybody, so they're not available, but everybody's available for the right price or the right script. Yeah. And that's interesting because I, I'm, you know, I have like five years in Los Angeles and yeah. very little Hollywood experience. And I find it so intriguing. I feel like the creative juices are always kind of just 
right there. And then, so people looking for the next gigs, there's, I mean, I, you've, there's also the hell stories in your book, and but there's also the beautiful parts of it, that the sweet like moments when the casting's right, when the writing's right. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's why people stick around and do it, you know. Um, but yeah, so this thing was it was really funny because, so I compared it to speed dating, and then so I did my first interview, and this was like the first time, other than moderating book events, that I've ever really interviewed anybody. So I interviewed the costume, costume designer that happens to be in the book. And I see, you know, my person who's down in the first row telling me that, you know, time's up, you better wrap it up. And then, so I just turned to her, I said, well, Katie, date's over. <laughs> we'll have coffee again sometime, <laughs> you know, and it really worked for me to keep it moving. So the audience laughed and I, and I was able to like shuffle people on and off stage, you know, sort of seamlessly. At the same time, I bet the people, I mean, as, as someone that, like, I'm lucky I get to do a long interview with you, because if I only had seven minutes, I would go insane. So there, it, it was, it's hard, as so, it's hard when you're like, oh, I think we're getting to something, and then they got, I would see the time's up. I'd be like, ah. You know, when you do the short interviews, you got to go in picking your subjects. So with the costume designer, my subject that I had gone in with is like, the pressure of being a crew person and what it's like to be on these shows where the script comes in at the last minute and you're supposed to have all your costumes ready by the next morning. How do you deal with that? And I also talked to her about her first job in Hollywood, which was for Roger Corman doing, you know, a B movie, which was also my first job coming coming to Hollywood. Yeah. I was a production assistant on Death Race 2000 with David Catter, Carradine and, and Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Yeah, and so um, did you? Did you move to Hollywood, or are, are you from here? I'm from New York. Oh, okay. Yeah, I went to NYU Film School, okay. and when I, gra I graduated, '74, I think so, February '75, I came out here to just you know look around, and I stayed on somebody's couch. They were going to the AFI, and I had a lot of friends who had gone from NYU to the AFI, and I got a job working on Death Race 2000 and then I never left so I've been here the whole time so and um, talk about the change of Los Angeles because when you came here you're like wow this is because we're in Los Feliz right now at the alcove and you're just like oh this is so cool well okay so here's the thing when I came to LA all my friends back in New York they were all New York snobs okay so New York has always been expensive but when I came to LA you know it was a totally different time because it was cheap. And I was living in a guest house in Santa Monica Canyon, which I think is now the most expensive zip code in the city. And I was paying for this little guest house, you know, like $150 a month less than I pay my gardener just to, like, do my house. You know, I mean, it was that cheap back then. So I would tell my New York snobby friends, you know, yeah, you're right. New York's much better. <laughs> we don't need no demand here yet. That's it. That's it. So that's what I did. And L.A. in that time, I mean, it was sort of like a cow town. It was really, it was not sophisticated. Um, in Santa Monica, instead of the Third Street Promenade, we had the Santa Monica Mall, which had a Newberry's, a Woolworth's, um, a J.C. Penney, a Sears, and another low-end department store called the Henshees, and they were all. That was the Santa Monica Mall, and now, of course, everything's you know yuppified and there's traffic. And Santa Monica was really a small town, 
and it was a, an incredible place to be and I, I was just in heaven there and because you were sort of on the outskirts of Hollywood but when you wanted to go in you can go in and it was all there and then you had your little place to just sort of retreat and uh, it's not like that anymore and probably traffic wise too because get just getting to the west side it feels like I, I can't have friends in the west side it's almost you know it's almost to that point where it's, you know, you have to meet in the middle it's crazy you're right because everybody sort of sticks to their little province you know it's like we, they should just rename these things like the arrondissements like in in, in in paris because everybody kind of sticks to their place and of course the city's so big that even with you know the public transit starting to improve it's, it's never going to cover this area sufficiently i mean it's great that we have it um Sometimes when I take the train downtown, it's like it's like the greatest thing ever for me. I get on the orange line from the valley. I take it to the red line. It takes me pretty much an hour and a half to get to Union Station, but I'm reading or I'm writing the whole time. And and it's like it's such a blessing to be able to do that. You know? I didn't know how cool the metro was until I got down here about five years ago, and I I made sure to find a place near the red line. And that red line to, to downtown L.A. is just perfect. It blows my mind. Yeah, and every time I like walk into Union Station, my mind is blown because, you know, I grew up in New York and I go to Grand Central Station and it reminds me of that. And you forget because all you know, all a lot of what you remember in your daily life about L.A. are the strip malls and the traffic and the boulevard. And then you get off that metro in Union Station and I just I walk through it real slow and I meet other writer friends of mine for lunch in downtown. We go to the Little Jewel of New Orleans. A lot of you ever been there? The little, it's like a real Cajun New Orleans restaurant, right? You know, right in and 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 market right in downtown, right up the street from Philippe's, where we also go sometimes. So. And when I walk through Union Station, I always think of Blade Runner. The um, the, that's the set for the police station. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's great. And that's the, another thing about, I mean, me coming uh, from outside of L.A., now I get to see, I, I get to be enamored by, I'm like, wow, I see movies and I know exactly where they're at now. Like even, I saw Quentin Tarantino's movie the other day and I'm just like, I'm sitting there pointing stuff out going, I now know. Yeah. So, yeah, what did you think of the Tarantino movie? I loved it. I didn't. I didn't. I, I, I'm like one of the few people... Who did not love the movie and I, I run into every oh they love it they love it they love it it's a love letter to LA and I went to see this movie because I was so excited I, I was so excited but I'm I'm gonna be that rare voice that that says that two hours and 41 minutes of vignettes strung, strung together is too much um, that the individual performances were awesome. I mean, I think the reason that people like the movie, quite honestly, is because of Brad Pitt and Leonardo and all the goodwill. I mean, they're great actors and people love them and they're great in the parts and they really want to see them. But when you step back and analyze that script, you know, and say, okay, what is the story moment to moment? What am I following? And to be honest, I wasn't really pulled in until Brad Pitt went to the Spawn rants. And then I'm like, I'm so wrapped up in that story, and that's where I wanted to be for the whole movie. But even like DiCaprio's story, there was so much time spent on the set of that television show, and then they'd cut to that great scene with the little girl, which was, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. But I really didn't, 
I wasn't emotionally invested in DiCaprio's story. And I started to get really emotionally invested with Pitt when he went out there, you know, when he said, I want to see George Spawn. I mean, I, yes, yes. Somebody has something that they're doing and, and a real drive, a real emotional drive. You know, because when you think about it, What's DiCaprio's drive? He wants to make it as an actor, and he's been in, and he drinks, and you know, get all those tropes and whatever. But when somebody in a plot says, I think you're hiding something, I want to see it, okay, I'm there. And of course, we know what the real story is. So knowing what the real story is, this is cool. And, you know, so, so there were parts of it I, I really, really did like. But as a whole, I was disappointed. I got to say, because of Quentin Tarantino, I give him an extra 40 minutes in my head. I just know if it wasn't him, I'd be like, you got to be fucking kidding me. And then at the same time, um, Brad Pitt and Leonardo are eye candy big time where it's just like they're so charismatic on the stage, on the on the screen where I also give like for the writing. I'll give it a lot less uh, critique, and that's people were like that, and they yeah. wanted to see this quote-unquote love letter to L.A. And you see Musso and Franks, and you see you know Al Pacino, who was also good. He didn't overact; he was great. I mean, it, and so individual parts of it were fantastic, but it it was indulgent, I think, you know. But okay, so the, so so that's me. Uh, uh, I got a kick out. I got a kick out of it just being in LA, and I went to the New Beverly screenings because I'm just like, yeah. And I was like, uh, I get it's just it just still blows my mind. I'm still a kid in Disneyland when I get to go to these things, and so I'm easily enamored. <laughs> I mean, you know something? I felt that way when I first came to LA. Even it wasn't like I said, it wasn't the LA it was today. But I felt like a kid in Disneyland for a while. I'm sorry, Tony. It wears off. <laughs> Eventually, I don't know how long, but it'll take you. But but you know, I, I, maybe it's the traffic. Maybe it's being in in this town and seeing the same thing a lot. But you know, and you. I mean, you've worked very hard in this town with. Uh, and um, and you even you went. I was. I'm babbling here. That was. We'll keep that in. Just keep everything in. Even my, especially my mistakes. Um, but like to getting to show, getting to become showrunner on Home Improvement was that was that the only showrunner gig that you had? No, I did Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which was I talk about that in the in the book, where I took Sabrina the Teenage Witch with a firm deal to make my pilot at the end of the two years, and of course the way Hollywood works, um, you don't nothing nothing that is said or even written is necessarily true, um, and it's really funny because I've been asked. On Wednesday, I'm going to speak to a bunch of lawyers. They want to talk to, you know, what writers want from lawyers or something like that. Or I'm not even sure what I'm doing there, but you know, with a bunch of lawyers. But one of the things I'm going to say is that for you know for writers, just because it's in the contract, you have to like know what they're capable, how they're capable of bending that contract and manipulating you, and you have to know what you're willing to do if they say, you know what, we don't feel like doing this. And, you know, because they operate from the point of view of you're not going to say no to them because you want to work again, you know. And so if you do want to work again, you have to consider 
how much this thing means to you. What if it does get taken away? What do you do then? And Or what if they do a bait and switch and try to get you to do something else? Are you going to be cool with that? So I think that the lawyer should inform the clients going in that this can certainly happen because for a writer, you know, uh, when you sign a contract and they sign a contract, you think, well, I'm going to do what they expect me to do and they'll do what I expect them to do because they signed it. But it's way more complicated than that. When I, when I read that part, I was, I had a, I, something came to my mind. I was like, what, what if there was a kill fee in the contract where it was just like if there was some exorbitant amount of money that would have, that would have been more than co- the cost of production of the, uh, the, what, of the pilot that you wanted to create? If, if that could have been leveraged. It all depends on how hot you are and how much they want you. You know, if you're, you know, J.J. Abrams, they're going to make it no matter what. Or if they want to put a kill fee on it, they'll put a kill fee on it. And, but then there is that rare time, like that I talked about, where I really wasn't doing it for the money. I was doing it because I really, it's like imagine a book that you really want to write and you start to write it and then somebody says, no, you can't write this. What are you? What are you talking about? You know, you know, we made a, we had a book deal. You know, whatever. So, there, there's stuff like that, and uh, you know, just got to be prepared for it. And what's uh, what's intriguing is after that you wrote novels. So, because a lot of a lot of, uh, but what I read is the mimicking. You were talking about the mimicking of the voice of like the showrunner, or when you're going in as a writer. Where when do you get to do your true voice? And I'm glad you got to write novels. What was the novel writing experience for you compared to after getting out of so much production? The no- writing novels as opposed to television. I mean, obviously it's it's night and day because when you're on a TV show, especially when you run the show, you have a staff working for you, so you're it's you're with a group all the time. So obviously when you're writing a novel, it's just you, and sometimes you get really sick of the company. You know, really, I, I mean, you know, you, you, you're right. And, and there's tons of self-doubt and self-hatred that's built into the novel writing, and the, the solo writing process. You know, the, the exception might be a journalist who's on a deadline and they don't have that much time to hate themselves or they don't get paid, you know, which is a great job in a way. you got to deliver and you got to deliver it, you know, by the next day. So there's no, there's no time for indulgence. Um, but yeah, so for me, novel writing, it was one of these things where I had personal stuff going on in my life. My first wife passed away and I had kids that I had to take care of. And so I took some time off. And when I was done, you know, when I felt that I had worked through my grief and that my kids were on a good path and I wanted to write again, I had no desire to go back into TV. So, and I had had a lot of good years, so I could afford to sit out for a while, or whatever. And uh, somebody said to me, I think it was my therapist, said, have you ever thought of writing a novel? And I said, I can't write a novel. And then I, I just came up with a character. And so I came up with this character, and I just loved the character. So I wrote three pages. And um, this story, it, it was called Elevating Overman, and it was about a guy you know, going through this midlife crisis where he was a loser for the first two acts of his life and he didn't want the third act to be that way. He wanted to improve his life. I feel like this guy already. I need, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> well, I was this guy too, except I had been successful, but that didn't mean that I wanted to live the same way. So 
So the whole thing is about you know wanting the, the your life to get improve your life, your life to change. So I write three pages of this character, and I'm really excited about writing the character. And then one day, I kid you not, I I went to my mailbox and I pulled out a copy of the Penny Saver, you know, the throwaway ad thing, right? And on the on the front page is an ad for life-changing LASIK surgery, $290, $299 an eye. Emphasis on the words life-changing. So that became the beginning of my story. So this character, who has been wearing glasses his whole life, sees an ad for life-changing LASIK surgery. He has it done, and once he has the LASIK done, not only does he see better, he sees the world differently. And because he sees the world differently, it changes the way people perceive him and the way he behaves. And that, so that was the springboard for the whole novel. And that I was so lucky because that took me through the entire book. So, so unlike a television show where you have to outline and plot in advance, I had one of these stories where my character just, I just followed him. And, uh, you know, toward, toward the end of the book, he and I were getting way more similar than we, than we were in the beginning. So it was really cool. It was a really cool journey, and I really enjoyed it. And, and, uh, and, and that, was, that was it. I've done things where, you know, when I'm writing a character, and I'm just like, you know what? That guy was an asshole to me. He's the villain. So I'll sit there, and I'll write, I'll write him, and I'll just be, like, totally on top of who it was. And then in rewrites, I start to realize... I'm the asshole. This is like all me. <laughs> it's just They're all us. All our characters are. There's no. There's no question about it. And um, people have said to me, like after my second novel, Cascade Falls, you know, you write women well. So, um, so then I wrote a novel because you know I I, t- I took what other people said you know seriously and I decided that I was gonna try to write a novel from first-person woman's point of view okay so aside from that being a really dangerous uh, area to dip your toe into in this day and age um, it was I mean it was fun to write but when I gave it to women in particular I mean everybody had you know all these different comments and and um, and I could never quite get a handle on, I mean, maybe I never found the right editor. I could not get a handle on how to fix this book and make it. I, I mean, I liked what I had, but I recognized I needed to fix it. I couldn't figure out quite how to fix it at the moment, so I put it down. And that's when I decided I got to get away from myself for a while and do this book the way we work because I wanted to work with other contributors. I wanted to talk to other people and hear their stories and and let that sit for a while. See, now, if I wrote from a woman's point of view first person, it would be like, and I woke up and I was feeling my breast, and then the next thing I was doing, I was feeling my vagina, and then it wouldn't go any further after that. It'd be done. <laughs> well, somehow I stretched out. Maybe there were, there were a, lot of, a lot of scenes of breast feeling, and, and there was a lot of sex in it. You know, yeah, so, I mean, listen, a lot, I don't know about you, but in a lot of my writing, I, I've gotten accused of male fantasies and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, we're targets, let's face it, you know, I mean. 
and I mean, I got my pervert fantasies, and they get in there, and I got to pull them out after people read them and go, "This is just a pervert fantasy." So it, it, it's like, but why? Why do you have to pull them out? Because pervert fantasies have been a staple of literature forever. I mean, yeah, if it doesn't serve the story. Okay. 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 Hey, Lolita, come on. <laughs> no, I still need to read Lolita, which I have on my to-read stand. Um, there's like five books that are just sitting there, and I, I can't wait to read it. But yeah, I've, I've heard great things about it. And they, people say, as a writer, you have to read that book. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great book. But you know, I'll give you another example. Not a book, but a movie. Right around the time I came to L.A., Annie Hall came out. Oh yeah. Okay, so I went to see. I went to see, not Annie Hall, I'm sorry, I loved Annie Hall, but Manhattan, Manhattan came out. So I went to see it at a screening at the Academy, and everybody's giving it great, it was like the Tarantino film, getting great reviews. And I'm in my head, isn't this pervy? This guy is with like a 15, 16 year old girl. And, and I am telling you, Tony, I, virtually nobody addressed this at the time. And it was like they so wanted to love Woody Allen and Woody Allen's New York and Gershwin on the score that nobody, I mean, that was like, that's like the major element of this thing. This guy is in his 50s and he's going out with like a 16-year-old in high school. And I mean, it was it was outrageous then, but nobody called him on it, you know? So. And I still love that film because she's the smartest person in the whole movie. And I think that's why I love it. Is All the adults are idiots, right? Right, but you know, at the, it, time, at the same time, it's wrong. It's wrong, and, and don't, on a certain level, you. I mean, I was from New York, and and there was artifice in the way he romanticized New York, and he did this for years and years and years, and he really, Woody Allen lived in lives in isolation anyway. He only has like his Upper East Side friends and the few people that he'll talk to or whatever, and he really didn't capture the real New York and I guess when they interviewed him he said well I don't this is my New York and this is New York I love and then it's his romanticized vision of a city that you know had a lot of problems and he just didn't show them you know and getting to uh, the book the way we work so um, you, you came up with this and it, it's it's just fascinating because you have so many people in it that are just all all different levels even like the I was the, I was intrigued by the boom mic operator as I sit here and have a mic almost a boom mic in front of us but um and it's everyone from top to bottom what I have found if if they're doing good work they love what they do if they're costume designers that is their craft and they're they're just they're intent on everything I, I i wrote a film that i was that i got to be on set for and i got to know a wardrobe and when we saw the screening they were like oh my god i'm so glad continuity went well and the, and the, and that color went right and i'm sitting there i was just going i forget how invested they are in their their portion of the film or the tv show yeah i mean there's so many people involved obviously in making a movie good and you know, when you're on the writing end of it, the producing end of it, part of you forgets how much these people who are, you know, hopefully they're in the union and they're getting benefits, but how much they care about their individual piece of the puzzle. And um, I, had, I had experiences like this, you know, when I was running shows. And I'll tell you about one. This was, this was really incredible. 
So I was doing Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which did a lot of magic, and they had a lot of crazy costumes and props. And we had one scene, we were doing like a wedding, and Sabrina the Teenage Witch had a talking cat in it, right? And at the wedding, we wrote a scene where the cat plays an organ, okay? So, you know, they shoot this like cat puppet playing the, it was really silly. Um, and so this was in the script. So before the production meeting, the prop guys come in my office, and one guy must have been six foot four, just like a real gentle giant and his partner, and they were really nervous to talk to me, and they said, Bruce, you know, we, we just want to show you something, and they got this box, and they're, they're hiding this thing, and they take out this little organ with all these jewels on it. It's really funny to look at that they want the cat to play, but they're really nervous because they brought this to a production meeting in the previous season, and one of the executive producers, not a writing producer, rejected it. But they thought it really worked for the script. And, but they were afraid to bring it to the production meeting, thinking they would get shot down again, right? This is that, like their baby. And I said, you know what? I love it. Bring it to the production meeting, and the minute you take it out of the box, I'm just going to say, I love it. Because I do love it. And we'll see if I get shot down by anybody else. But I would bet you that we got a at least a 50% chance of you getting this prop in the show. So we, we had orchestrated it, we had the production meeting, the guy takes the, uh, the organ out of the box, I go, oh my God, that's so funny, that's fantastic, like I'd never seen it before. And it, it got in the script, and it got, on, it got shot. These people were so grateful because their hard work had been acknowledged, and, and it was good work too, so. And, the, and that, that bring you know that kind of brings us to being a showrunner. I know a lot of people don't understand the, what a showrunner is and the just the wait what what's the what is what is who do you how, who would do you as a showrunner have to answer to and then how do you how do you take care of a crew because you're essentially taking care of the whole show is that is that right? Yeah, you're pretty much the boss of like 200 people. If you have a star like Tim Allen or Roseanne or you know somebody who's like you know, a heavy hitter who's kind of the reason the show exists. You know, a lot of times you have to answer that star or at least have a good partnership or relationship with that person. But basically, you're answering to the studio and the network and everybody else kind of answers to you. So I'll tell you one more story like this, which is real, it was really funny. Um, I don't know whether it was before the last season of Home Improvement, but there was a woman who worked on the show worked in post-production and she was called an associate producer she came into my office she said bruce next year i'd like to be promoted to co-producer you don't have to pay me any more money but i'd love to have that title you know for my future she was great i thought it was a fine idea i said yeah well we'll make it happen i get a call from disney head of production saying uh i understand you want to make her a co-producer i said yeah he said, I don't think it's a good idea. I said, she's not asking for any more money. Why isn't it a good idea? He said, it sets a bad precedent. And I said, how does it set a bad precedent? Well, if we make her a co-producer, everybody will want to be a co-producer. And I said, but we don't have to say yes to everybody. <laughs> we just say yes to the people that we think deserve it. So we went back and forth. He thought it set a bad precedent. I didn't see the problem. Back, forth, back, forth. So finally I said to the guy, okay, I got to get back in the writing room. Just tell me. Whose decision is this, yours or mine? And he says, 
there's a pause and he says, um, it's yours. I said, okay, she's a co-producer. And he said, I think you're setting a bad precedent. I said, I'm okay with that. And it was fine. And then after that, were, uh, did you end up bumping up other people on that show? Or? People got bumped up as they deserve to be bumped up. Some, pe- some people had it in their contracts that if they got picked up for another season, they got bumped up to the next level. But a lot of times for the below-the-line people, they don't have anything like that in their contracts. You know. And then it's, it's the push. It just feels like there's a push and pull because you have the network who's just banking. I mean, they're banking on the money and they're just they're, they're, like, they're like, we have to keep this company going. And they have a huge pressure from their higher ups. And so to, and then to keep the creative process going, just that that middleman position, if not middleman of showrunner, but between the two of them, just it seems like it seems like a ton of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. And now there are many more cooks. So, so you'll have your studio executives, and then you'll have a production company. Then you'll have the stars managers who've gotten themselves executive producer credits, and you got all these people you have to juggle who are you know using up your budget, and many of whom are doing nothing, quite honestly. Um, and you got to answer to all these people. But so that takes a certain amount of finesse and a certain kind of person to do it, and. I didn't think I didn't know if I was that kind of person, and I found out that I was, and you know, so it was uh, it was good. I mean, I, I the two shows that I ran, so I ran Home Improvement for three years, I ran Sabrina for two, and I had smooth sailing on both shows because I figured out how to be organized and and how to you know make people happy, you know, because sometimes people take stands in show business and in life that there's no point taking a stand I mean it's like the phrase that I would always use to this friend of mine he and I would agree he was a showrunner it says like what does it cost you to be nice to this person what does it cost you to to bump up this person a co-producer if they're not asking for any more money if you do it you know you're gonna get even better work out of them the next year so when you keep that in mind and you treat everybody with respect, it goes a long way. And then, so the, you get the first, you get the first job as a, as a showrunner. You and what's what's like your first day like in this new position? Because this is I mean, that's that has to be intense. It's intense. I mean, the writers sort of know the drill going in, unless they're brand new. And the drill is basically come into the room with ideas, come into the room with stories you want to tell. Um, and then the first day, you start mapping out the arc of, this, of the season, where the characters are, where you left them last season, and where you want them to be at the end of the season. And then you start seeing if any of these people's stories fit into those arcs, how to tweak them, how to adjust them. And, you know, within a week or so, maybe you have three stories that you want to do, and then the next week they start outlining them, and, you know, you're on your way. And... Um what was the most What was the most fun of it for you? Just as as you were going through your uh, the different TV shows, I mean, was, was it really working on the writers' end, or was it in production or post? What, like where where was the where was the fire for you creatively? I mean, there there were many fun parts and many stressful parts, but the writers' room is you know if you if you have a bunch of people that you think are funny and you and you're just you know shooting the shit all day long, and then you know you come up with a show or a script that you think is really good and you can't wait to see it 
you know, on its feet, and then you go to a table reading, and the actors hate it, and then you go to the next day after you rewrite it, and the and the studio to, has their notes, and then the next day the network has problems, and then whatever you do all your fixing and you commiserate about you know why why do we spend our whole week being told what we've done wrong and then by the time you get to friday night the audience loves the show and you feel fantastic so oh yeah because um now those shows that i worked on were not sabrina but home improvement was shot in front of a live audience so that that that's intense because do you shoot like three do you shoot it three times, or how many? Um... Well, what we did on Home Improvement, we shot the whole show in the afternoon. We got it all in the can. And then at night, we did just one version of the show. And, and we do a couple of takes if an actor flubbed it. But if we knew we had it in the can, we, knew, we already knew we had the show, so we didn't have to stay all that late. But if a, show, if a joke tanks in front of the audience, then the writers rewrite it, and they bring, it, bring out another joke for the actor to do. And... The audience usually laughs because they're not expecting it. They're expecting the old joke, and you know, that's that's got to be fun. And then, and what's great about that is it's not like a single camera where you get, you're getting instant affirmation from a crowd of people. Um, wait, I I think it might have been an essay in uh, one of one of the one of the writers in your book where, and it might have been I don't I can't remember if it was yours about the um the the, the one dude who was laughing so hard. Through, through all of the, and it was just so perfect for the audience so the writers didn't have to sit there and drum up fake laughs and then it turned out he had ment- a mental, he was mentally disabled or <laughs> yeah it was a particularly unfunny show and they sent the writers out into the stands to you know encourage the other audience members to laugh so we were pretending we were, weren't on the show and then yeah there was one fellow who actually genuinely was laughing and we told the studio pages to get him in there every week and he was on a tour bus of mentally disabled people, and and then we didn't have the heart to tell our bosses that, you know, this wasn't the general feeling about their show. <laughs> they're just like, oh my god, we're killing. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I used to way back when I did some stand-up comedy. That I really hated it when other like comedians would uh, overlaugh for their friends. When because you're sitting there going, oh, that's that's just kind of embarrassing for us all. The the the, the ha you know the fake ha ha when just like that joke didn't land. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that that that, that happens. But um, you know, you were talking earlier about the boom operator who's in the book. Um, he became a stand-up comedian. Oh yeah. He came to our event at Dynasty Typewriter yesterday, and he performs there now as a stand-up. So he came there just to, you know, support the book, and, you know, because he was in the book, and it was a really good story. Yeah. What's his name so we can keep an eye out for him? His name is Matt Knudsen. Knudsen. Not, not Knudsen, Knudsen. <coughs> Sorry, I just, there's a siren and a cough. We'll keep it in. We keep everything in here. That's, <laughs> and that's a lot of siren. So we hope everybody's okay at the other end of that. I hope so. I hope so. I hope it's a cat in the tree. Is it, wait, I don't know if that's because I'm older where you're just like, oh, great, they're going to get a cat in the tree if you see a fire truck. <laughs> yeah, people don't remember a cat in a tree. They just yeah. think fire truck, uh, well, you know, if somebody needs an ambulance, the fire truck is right there too, you know. So. And then, you know, when the cops are like, all, oh, there must be a don- there must be a sale at the donut shop. That's, yeah. That was our old joke. Yeah, that was a joke. Cops and donuts. But now we're in more progressive times, so we don't even talk like that anymore. Except, well, but now there's nothing we can say, right? Because it's so progressive that, you know, 
men are not allowed to say anything, right? So let's just so let's do the rest of the interview silent. We'll just look in each other's eyes. <laughs> or you know, we just talk about social justice for everyone, and which is not a bad thing. I I, I believe in it, but yeah, I'm I'm just a fan of um, I'm a fan of people who aren't assholes. I think that's that's everything in life. It is everything in life. Don't be an asshole is a great, great mantra. And, um, you know, if you just kind of step back and, you know, I guess the older you get and the more experience you have with assholes, the more, I mean, reverse modeling is some of the, the best things that we can have in life. Knowing people and saying, I do not want to be that guy. I mean, I, I know people like that who are my reverse role models. Everything this guy does, I want to be the opposite. So I love the term reverse role model because if you have to work with them, that's kind of a, a positive term to go, great, I get to work with them so I know not I do I know what not to do in my life. Yeah, and you can get really excited about it because they're they're giving you insights into all the shit that you never want to be. <laughs> I love that. And, and it's yeah, it's, it's um and, and I see it too, like even with people who are like writing books and do it, and they get, you know, the, the ones who, the ones who are really talented are the ones that sit back and kind of go, thank you for the opportunity. This is great. It's just the gratitude because, I mean, we're lucky we get to do this. So there's, I, I, I walk around just with immense gratitude. Even being able to talk to you, is, this is just life fun stuff. It's, you know. it's fun. I mean, we are just privileged to be able to have this conversation we're privileged to be writers um and in la i mean i know that you're pretty involved in the la lit scene and you know a lot of people um, more than i do actually because you've only been here five years but you're sort of in the heart of it here and um coming from show business you know everything is sort of Everybody has their little worlds, you know, and when you come from show business, sometimes the lit world will look at you like, you know, certainly the New York publishing world, not a big fan of sitcom writers. I mean, just like the theater. I mean, if you're, a, if you're an ex-sitcom writer and you want to put a play on Broadway and you, and you happen to get reviewed by the New York Times, just be prepared to close in a day. <laughs> because, I mean, everybody's pigeonholed, everybody's branded. I mean, and you know, honestly, I, I I found a lot of the people that I met in the lit world in LA to be great, you know, especially once you meet them and, and, and go to some of these, you know, reading series and stuff. And, um, you know, I've read at David Rockland's thing. And I, I mean, he's a great guy. And um, yeah, it's terrific. And, 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 and I've been to a few of the other ones. And, um, and then the people that I've met just through Rare Bird, even some great writers. Um, I met David Kukoff through Rare Bird, and David Kukoff did this anthology, L.A. in the 70s, and that's where I wrote about coming to L.A. in the 70s and what it was like back then versus what it's like now, and I wrote about the whole Woody Allen thing, and I wrote about my experience, you know, in Santa Monica in 1975 and working for Corman, and that, in a sense, was the reason I thought of doing this book, because... My original notion for this book was a documentary where it was from sitting around in writers' rooms and all these writers telling stories about, you know, development hell and casting hell and production hell. And all the, they all had great stories. And I said, man, what if I just went around with my camera and did a, a, this doc called One Hollywood Story and everybody would get a chance to tell their story? And then 
I thought this was the greatest idea ever until I realized that once I cut it together, I'd have 90 minutes of talking heads of people that didn't look like Brad Pitt or, you know, Jennifer Lawrence. They look like me, you know. And I thought, well, okay, then why don't I break it up with some of their work, you know, some clips. But then you try and buy the clips from the studio, that costs more than producing the whole movie. So I completely shelved the idea. And then I wrote this thing about L.A. in the 70s for Kukov's book. And then, you know, a couple of months later, I said, wait a minute, maybe my documentary is really a book because the writers get to write and they don't have to talk to a camera and I can get people from the boat below the line and interview them and and all that stuff and so that's kind of how this book came to be and at the same time I feel the intimacy of a book uh, there's there's a closer relationship to it it's, it's kind of hard we're in such a weird time where everything's streaming and it's just like people will put a documentary on and, and they could walk around the house I'm going you, you got to sit in front of it it's just, it's I'm one of those weirdos that just still wants to everyone to see it at the theater and just be right in front of it. Yeah, I agree with you. And I also, you know, I would ask you, like the world of podcasts, there's so many podcasts. You know, people said, well, why don't you do this as a podcast? And it would be a good pod- podcast, except that there's a million Hollywood podcasts. So I like the fact that, that it's a book. And um, it's just different. It is what it is. It's in its contained form. And I liked this show that I did at Dynasty Typewriter, and I can do another one there, you know, and hire and have different people there. And, you know, because so that was fun. But the podcast thing is that's a lot of work. And 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 you got to get your listeners. And I, you've been doing this for a while and, and you, you do it well. I mean, I went back and I listened to a couple of them and I loved listening. I love listening to Ben Lurie. He's like. He's just such an... I mean, I've heard him read, too. He's such an interesting, thoughtful, just different kind of guy. You know, and he's very honest about his experiences with Hollywood and how he wasn't really suited to it and very self-deprecating, super talented. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. When I when I moved into writing novels, and, and I just even got a taste of meeting writers in this world... I was really excited because I met people who write all this different kind of material. When you work in TV comedy, you tend to, people tend to get homogenized, especially back when I did it and there was so much multicam and everybody was doing the same type of writing and everybody was aware of everybody else's shows and everybody else's deals and they wanted to make the big deal and they wanted to be able to write like people write for Seinfeld or write like people write for Friends and in the lit world there's no money anyway people people have their voice you know they're they're trying to find their voice and everybody comes at it from a different place and for me, that was a revelation. It, it, it really was to, to to meet all these different kinds of writers and and just you know I admire so many of them. Yeah, Ben Laurie's fantastic. His short stories just blow my mind. I'm just I wish I had I wish I had his brain and talent on that end. I could never write a short story like. That. Well, you know, you never know what you can do until you you try it. And your style is your style, and his style is his. So. Um, so yeah it's fun to see the grass greener and you're just like oh I'm sure he comes up with that in a second you know but you find out that it takes a lot of uh, massaging to really get one of his short stories together he works on it very intensely yeah 
And I, I mean, I know that you've interviewed so many other of the LA writers around, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's a writer who I read. I, did you interview Todd Goldberg? No, no, I interviewed his brother, but I, but I need to get Todd on the show. Todd came to my, uh, I teach at UCLA Extension, so he's come to my class to talk once. Yeah, he's a character. He's like an MFA guy, and, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, sort of back and forth about the whole MFA writing style. And, you know, that there are certain people who think that it turns out a certain type of writing or whatever. I don't know. I don't have an MFA, but... But, I mean, he wrote a book that, I don't, I, I don't even know, but it, it's a short story book uh, that, that it, all the stories take place in the desert. It's called, like, Other Resort Cities or something like that. Pretty, pretty damn good. And um, so he's, you know, one L.A. writer that, that I've, I've liked. And I love David Rockland. He writes historical novels. And... Um, yeah, I mean, and then Natasha Dayong, you know, wrote her book, and David Kukoff is somebody who comes out of the showbiz, who wrote a, a novel and also did an anthology. So it's a great, a great mix of different kinds of people that you. I have David Kukoff scheduled to to the interview. I can't wait. Yeah, he's great. He's great. And he also wrote for your book as well. Is that right? He did. He did. And he wrote a terrific piece about working in uh, in features when all the studios wanted was, was high concept. You know, and um, the high concept movies are like, look who's talking, you know, the talking baby. And, and they just went crazy with this stuff. And, and he had to write a, a, like a whole bunch of these kinds of scripts. So, yeah, his essay is really good. I'm so in, the, the look who's talking thing really cracks me up because that was John Travolta pre-Pulp Fiction, right? <laughs> it's, just like, it's like, I remember when my buddy got in touch with me. He's like, dude, John Travolta's going to be in a movie where he's got long hair and plays a junkie. And I'm like, what? And I was there opening night for Pulp Fiction just to see that. It's, and it, was, it just blew my mind at the time, 1994. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was crazy. Just a crazy time, and I remember all that time too. And so, wh when they were doing high concept movies, they they were doing so many bad sitcoms. There were like a million sitcoms on the air, and you had the very few good ones, and some of the just most awful sitcoms in the world. And if you look in in, in the book, the way we work, there's a, a piece by a guy named Roy Teicher, who got paid a whole lot of money to be in development for comedy. But his credits were like the worst credits in the world. They, they were, they were a lot of shows from the Gary Marshall School that were the, not the Happy Days of the Laverne and Shirley, the the C and D grade shows that nobody ever heard of, that he worked for. And it, it's a very funny piece to read, um, all about that time. Yeah, and uh, did you did you run into Gary Marshall as you were working on? Uh, as in you know, I didn't run into Gary personally, but I did get to work on. I did a script for Laverne and Shirley, and and I knew a lot of people who were working for. And and I don't know if Bosom Buddies was part of the whole. It was not part of the Gary Marshall school, but I remember loving Bosom Buddies as a kid because I just I think I was just so stoked that dudes could be in this 
hotel with these girls in their pajamas. That was just like the biggest fantasy ever, you know. Well, but I was I was brought up in a very re- restrictive uh, situation, so I was just sitting there going, "Wow!" It was like that in Three's Company. I'm like, "Wait, two girls in a house? Oh my God!" Jack Tripper is just everything to me. That's right. Yeah. And I read about your book, by the way. I want to read that. That sounds really interesting. The whole Jehovah's Witness thing, man. Jeez. When did you get out? It was a progressive thing. Um, the, the book and the film was a very condensed version, but it took me about nine years of back and forth. And then I was also married to a Jehovah's Witness. So when I finally told her, I was like, I can't even go and participate anymore. It was another nine years before we got divorced, and I think she still thought that I was going to come back, but then started to realize. You when you, how old were you when you started to say, I don't like this anymore, I need, I need to get out? Well, I was, when I was 18, a lot of really bad things happened in my family life, because we had a suicide in my family as well as my dad's nervous breakdown, and my dad was a very high-level elder. And I saw everybody scatter, and they were just like, what did you do against Jehovah that has caused this to be for your family? That was a wake-up call, but I still believed. I still utterly believed. I just thought it was fucked up. And then... There, and other things happened, and it was just kind of gradual. And even when, even after I left, I was like, I still believed it was truth, but there was something too wrong with it where I had to kind of, um, I just had to back away. And it, it took probably another five years of me just like reading, and reading novels. I mean, reading novels really saved me because that, that was speaking to me in a way that I've never been spoken to before because it's so ins, ins, insulated. And... So that kind of real, I mean, not the novel is the end all and be all for me for just loving what, what, it, what I got to do as a reader and then lucky enough to be on the other side of it. Because you get to write characters that break out of something. You know, they, they get to live lives outside a, an outline of life, you know, which is my whole problem with orthodoxy and religion of any kind and it's just you know it works for some people I'm not a rule follower you know I, I was the kid who just like I mean I wasn't I wasn't a horrible kid but I you know I grew up in New York and you know there my parents had no idea I was taking the subway into Manhattan and hanging out at jazz clubs on Avenue B when nobody went there and and that was always my thing that I, I was always searching for something that was just like you know exciting music or exciting writing and and you know when these lives of where everything is very by the rules and it's hard it's just hard you know um, I don't know have you seen this show Stizzle on, on Netflix. It's about Orthodox Jewish community. It's absolutely fascinating. And I thought I would be the last person who'd want to watch this show. And it's it's phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. Because it's a window into that world where um, you see these people as more than just followers. They are following the rules, but they're questioning. They And they have... They're real people. They're, you know, they're not, not just robots. 
Yeah, the, the, the thing about questioning when you're a Jehovah's Witness, you can't question. That's, they don't like the questions. So I want to recommend an, a book to you that's, that's awesome. Um, it's also about Orthodox Jews. It's called something like All That Go Do Not Return. And I think the name of the author is Shulam Dean. And he was in one of these Orthodox cult communities in upstate New York, married an Orthodox woman. They had like a bunch of kids and he stopped believing, believing. And he thought that he could leave and get divorced and have an arrangement with his wife where they split the kids. And the, he just was destroyed because not only did the wife want nothing to do with him, she had the power of this community on her side. And the community was very uh, ingrained in in the politics of the local government. So when he, you know, went to make his sort of divorce settlement or whatever, they ruled in favor of his wife every time. And he, his family basically got, his kids got pulled away from, from him and, yeah, and turned against him. I really need to read that. So, but he lives in New York. I have to go to New York and interview him too. It's a brilliant book. And, you know, I wrote to him after I read the book because I was on a book at a book festival and I followed him and my flight wasn't for another hour or two. So I stuck around to hear him speak and I thought he was fascinating and I bought the book. I read it and then I wrote to him. He didn't write me back. So, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe you'll have more luck with him than I do. But but also coming from your experience. Yeah. You email him. And, and maybe you say, I am a Jehovah's Witness. I had a similar thing. He, I mean, the, guy, the book is fascinating. The guy is great. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're on our side on the literary world. <laughs> I'm happy. To, I hope you guys keep me around a while. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to stay here. I'm, I, ha, I just wrote another novel. While I was waiting for this book to get published, I, I wrote a draft of another novel not the one that I was working on the woman's one that's still on the shelf and that's the next thing that maybe I if I can get this next novel going and out then maybe I'll take a look at that and try and get that into shape so Bruce thank you so much for being on the show thank you Tony appreciate it Bruce Ferber on drinks with Tony check out his new book the way we work on the job in Hollywood which he edited that is out now on rare bird lit He's also the author of Cascade Falls and Elevating Overman. Remember, stay hydrated and don't die yet. Don't die yet, because if you die, that's one less listener, and we will all feel affected. So tune in next week for more conversations with authors and storytellers. Have a great weekend, and I will see you next Wednesday.